You're very welcome to this month's episode of Zivo Talks, Points of Power, Controlling the Controllables. In this session, we're going to be digging into the topic of conscious living and overcoming addictive behavior patterns that are so pervasive in our modern life. For any listeners that may be employers or HR or just generally interested in ways to enhance well-being at work, we very much hope that this conversation will inspire a fresh take, um, first and foremost, on understanding employees who may be struggling and help raise awareness about their challenges, but also to know how to better support them. When it comes to addiction, we can often tend to instantly think about the more severe end of the line, things like drugs, alcohol and tobacco. However, the seemingly less serious ones like screen time, work and even health habits like exercise can also actually become very compulsive, self-limiting and extremely damaging in the long run. And there's no doubt that some of these less apparently harmful addictions do play a big part in the escalating cases of burnout and chronic stress-related illness that we're seeing globally. So it's really a crucial part of employee well-being that requires attention. But our conversation today is not only for those that are in roles supporting others, it's also an opportunity for all of us to get a gentle reminder on the importance of reflecting on how we live our own lives and to get some inspiration from an amazing human who's here with me today, Dr. Brian Penny. Brian has been serving as a powerful advocate for recovery and personal empowerment for many years, openly sharing his experience of moving from one of the most destructive and life-threatening addictions to completely regaining the reins to live a much healthier and happier life. He's a living testimony to our capacity to reinvent ourselves and come back from even the depths of despair. Aside from Brian's very impressive academic and professional achievements, completing his PhD and working as a corporate keynote speaker and lecturer in Trinity for several years, as well as his heavy involvement in addiction prevention strategies for vulnerable teens. The word that comes to mind for me in describing him is lucid. In the glimpses I've got into Brian's world through his social media presence, talks and podcast, Find the Others, he's an incredibly self-aware, intentional and humble soul. And it honestly is an absolute pleasure and privilege to have him on our show today. Brian, thank you so, so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for the, the wonderful introduction. I really, really do appreciate that. I, I think the word lucid that you mentioned is something I'd never really talked about or, or really thought about before in terms of my own experience. And I actually had to, uh, when, I, when, I, when I read that, when I heard that word recently, I actually had to Google it. And it actually means to think clearly, which I didn't really, I thought lucid dreaming was something that came up. And I yeah. think, you know, I don't think none of us are ever always thinking clearly, but that is probably a core goal of my life because of the blind spots and the the the, the insidious nature of self-deception. I'm always trying to catch those lies we tell ourselves. So that, that's an incredible, uh, an incredible thing well, to say. I really appreciate well, it. Add on to the clarity that the light that you are, you clearly are doing powerful work in the world. Um, so I guess to kick off, we'd just love to maybe for listeners who don't know you or aren't that familiar with your background, if you'd like to just briefly introduce a little bit about where you've come from and your journey so far. Yeah, so basically, like, obviously, my my, my story at its, at its core looks like a story of addiction. But for me, it was a story of trauma. Uh, I, I had a lot of trauma as an infant and then as a child. And that sort of... Uh, 
developed into really cro chronic anxiety, agitation, fear. I was a very fearful kid, always worrying, always overthinking. And even though, like, I sort of done well in school, I had aspirations to do well, and there was elements of a very happy childhood, but it was just smothered in anxiety that wouldn't go away. Like, I was never clinically diagnosed, but I would have had generalized anxiety and phobic fears as well. And when I lived in an area, a great area, but a, a highly disadvantaged area. So there's a lot of drugs, a lot of violence, a lot of challenges in the area that where I grew up. And it was only inevitable I was going to try drugs, to be quite honest. I start smoking at 14. I soon start smoking hash, taking tablets, sniffing petrol in the fields. And it sort of escalated very quickly. And then by the time I was 16, I started playing around with opiates, taking methadone, interestingly enough, for the first time. We didn't believe, we didn't know the depths of, we didn't think it was like heroin, although we know now it's a substitute for that. Um, and I tried heroin for the first time at 17. And I always remember that experience. I, I wrote a book uh, about a memoir of my life and I dedicated a whole chapter of that book called Falling in Love to my first time doing heroin. And it literally just took away all of the psychological and emotional challenges, the anxiety, the worry and the bodily agitation. It took it away in an instant. It brought me to heaven. But it soon brought me to hell and I literally spent the next 18 years of my life addicted, 15 years chronically addicted to heroin. And yeah, it, it stole my soul. It stole so many years of my life. It took everything away from me. And I was very lucky in 2013. I, I had what I can only call luck, dumb luck, perspective shift and awakening, some people call it. But I just began through a near death experience. I, I started looking at the world through a different lens and I became obsessed about the human mind and I wanted to learn. I had this thirst, this hunger to learn about human behavior and the human mind. And that literally brought me on a journey through a degree in psychology. I done well. I got a scholarship for Trinity, done my PhD. And I suppose in all, I've really developed programs and courses and workshops that I deliver in schools, as you, as you kindly mentioned. And I also deliver in, in, in the corporate world as well, which is around, I call it a program for life. There's other elements of it as well. Um, but I just deliver them now today. So my my it's it's a mix of my lived experience and my academic expertise that has really come together to help me to help other people and get paid for it at the same time. So it's it's turned it's it's a, a a dark story that turned into a bright one. <laughs> Absolutely, I love. I I was listening to a podcast recently where he shares how your corporate work is like a sideline to the passion project it helps fund the the core work which is yeah like robin that hood. Real <laughs> satisfaction the robin hood was yeah uh, the satisfaction and working with young young vulnerable populations um i'm interested in two things that you really jumped out at me and what you shared there one was about the early trauma and many people listening may be familiar with the work of gabor mate and the amazing advocate he is for this um expanded awareness in the biomedical field around how these uh, early childhood experiences can profoundly shape us um so would you share, if you feel to, a little bit about what that trauma was in, in your early childhood? Yeah, so it's quite shocking for some people, especially mothers when they hear this. Um, so prior to 1985, uh, infants did not receive a general anaesthetic when they went under the knife for surgery. So I was born in 1978. So after three weeks, I had what's called intestinal malrotation. So my guts were twisted. So I went under 
the knife without a general anesthetic. I was simply given a muscle relaxant to stop me squirming on the table. And the rationale behind that was it was based on some neurological evidence from the 1940s, these pinpricking tests. So babies didn't feel pain like adults. And I think there was a cost benefit analysis saying, well, the the anesthetic is dangerous for an infant and they're not going to remember it anyway. Now, the research today shows that they got that badly, badly wrong. And basically, although you don't cognitively remember the event, as a pal of Gabor Mates has said, Vessel van der Kock, I hope I got his name right, his book, The Body Keeps the Score. So the body keeps the score. And every time I talk about this for over 40 years later, I have this little urge to rub the scar on my belly. It's still there. And what we know from the research of trauma now, like it leaves an imprint on your body and brain. So it literally oversensitizes an area of the brain and it's it's an adaptive process. It's basically saying you had a massive trauma. If this happens again, we need to be hypervigilant. We have to be ready for potential danger again. But it's a maladaptive response in the world we live in today. So I just became a hypervigilant, overly sensitive infant kid that was on the lookout for threats and that just sort of manifested itself as anxiety and bodily agitation and and it's the same for many people like even relative traumas can turn into challenges for people going forward yeah so it doesn't have to be like you mentioned something quite extreme and also that your addiction was quite extreme but for many people these shocks in early childhood can come in different forms and then lead to varying degrees of addiction in adulthood. Yeah, definitely. It's a really important point you made there, Sarah, because when it comes to addiction, like they often talk about, oh, heroin addiction is so bad. But at the end of the day, every addiction is to escape and avoid some kind of psychological and emotional pain. Nobody wants to be an addict. Nobody wants to be addicted. It's it's There's an element of self-deception and denial and justification within it as well. But it's like whether it's like exercise addiction, whether it's phone addictions, whether it's food addiction, numbing, numbing your feelings, eating your feelings. We we talk about eating your feelings, you know, it's there's all these different addictions and it could be subtle anxiety, subtle stressors where you're having a couple of glasses of wine. But addiction is addiction. The processes are the same. And I think some people go to more extreme lengths, probably depending on multiple factors. But the processes are the same. And when we talk about addiction, I'd love your your take on it. For me, I, I kind of tend to think of it as synonymous when we when we're railroaded in an automatic way of behaving. Um, oftentimes not conscious. Sometimes it's conscious and it's against what we actually prefer. But we find ourselves looping in these behaviors. And then there's this lack of autonomy or control or agency to choose something different. Would you would you see it that way, or would you also bring something to it? Or yeah, definitely. You've pretty much um, confirmed for me the general consensus of what addiction is and my beliefs around it as well. And I think the way I would usually describe it is it's 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 a habitual behavior, which could be like phone addiction or a substance use as well. A habitual behavior that's causing problems. That's a key piece. It's causing problems and you can't stop despite the problems that it's causing. Now, that's that autonomy piece, a loss of autonomy that you talked about there. So some people like let's say they're having a few drinks a couple of times a week, maybe it turns into every night of the week, but then all of a sudden, now this is causing problems and they stop. They don't necessarily have an addiction per se, but if you can't stop, that's mm-hmm. when it becomes what we what we try to define as addiction. But it is a little bit more nuanced than that as well. I don't like labeling things in absolutes. So, but that's loosely how I'd say it. Kind of a, a subtle, there's a gradient or spectrum there. Definitely. So then um, the second thing that 
popped out when you first did your intro was the turning point for you and you kind of uh brushed over a little bit about the great awakening um or that some people would call it an awakening but just this sort of epiphany or a moment of illumination would you like to talk a little bit or unpack a little bit about what that turning point was and what, you know what form it came for you and then how this segues into having that restoration of power to choose consciously yeah, that's and it really does link into that. I love, I love that. I love how how, how you've uh, taught about that there. So for for me, I was I had no power. I was very decept, very self deceptive. I had no agency. I was just sort of rolling along, and the world was choosing my path. And it came to a point where I was on death's door. I I had no way of earning money anymore. The drugs had stopped working. And it was the first time I tried to get clean for the first time in life. I tried to break free from drugs. And through that process, I'd done a detox on, on from benzodiazepine so I could get into an opiate detox. This was the process I had to go through. And I ended up having what's called a grand mal convulsive seizure. So literally every neuron in my brain fired at the same time. And I basically in my house, I I through that seizure, I bit my tongue, split my tongue down the middle. It was a horrific scene. I was rushed to hospital. When I got to the hospital and I woke up later that night, I felt like I had a bag of thumbtacks in my mouth. And I was just so broken mentally, emotionally, physically, in every way. And there was a moment where I couldn't make sense of my reality. I couldn't label my reality when I woke up and I thought I was brain damaged. And I remember just thinking to myself, oh, my God, game over. There's no coming back from this. And I remember just thinking I was waiting to just be consumed and overwhelmed by that anxiety, that those psychological challenges that consume my entire life. And I remember just thinking, I give up. I can't do this. You've beat me. I'm done. You beat me. Game over. I'm done. I can't fight this anymore. And as I lay back down on the trolley while I was in the hospital, I was waiting just to, for the overwhelm and anxiety to consume me. But it was like a sense of peace came over me. And that was the first moment of some sort of kind of a shift in my life. And a couple of weeks after that, I I I was lying at home, having other seizures, having other, other um, I was waiting for the benzos to come out of my system, waiting to get into an opiate detox. But that was the start of a surrendering experience for me where I stopped fighting. I couldn't fight anymore. I was knocked out. The fight was knocked out of me. So I feel very grateful for that horrific experience, which is strange. And when I landed in the, the opiate detox a couple of weeks later, there was just like the shift in perspective. It was like there was an energy coming into me and a hope, a sense of hope that I might be able to get through this and have a life again. And it was at that detox, in that detox, a little farm on the outskirts of Dublin, where I started reading books about psychology. I was interested in the human mind. But something happened during that process as well. I started meditating for the first time. And my first day clean officially was the 8th of October, 2013. And I remember waking up on the farm that day in the detox facility. And I was going for a little walk around the farm because I was up before everyone else. And I had this profound experience that I can only describe as the world felt like it was glowing. That's the only way I can really describe it. It's very hard to describe verbally. It was like everything was brighter. The sounds were more cheerful. It was like I was tuned into nature in a way I'd never experienced before. I was very present in the moment. And what I experienced, what how I how I seen that was it left me, do you know, it left me so many questions. Why was I so emotionally and psychologically broken? Why was I now in the depths of a heroin detox feeling so good and energized mm -hmm. and in tune with the present moment? 
And how could I find out what the hell happened and share it with other people? So that set off this sort of burning desire to learn about the human mind. And to be honest, I've sort of been living on that buzz ever since. So it's 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 it, like it's alleviated to a certain extent. Like if I could go back to any time in my life as a great moment, a really sense a moment to experience again, I would go back to when I was in a heroin detox, which is a crazy, crazy thing to say. But that was the start of it all, and it sort of tempered over time. But it sort of left me with a with a feeling of gratitude and goodwill and energy that's never really left me, to be quite honest. I'm smiling away listening to you here because, uh, yeah, I know through my own lived experience, the the deepest pain can be that gateway to the yeah yeah the greatest freedom. Yeah, when when you were sharing, I could hear the word surrender. So it's sort of like post this dark night of the soul you had this uh, profound realization dark night of the soul <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's been unfolding ever since and you've been such a gift in your in your journey and and contributing so much to people in the process it's so so powerful Zevo is a fully integrated workplace well-being provider we understand that every company has different goals needs and characteristics our team of psychologists, performance nutritionists, and experts in the field of physical health conduct in-depth research and thereafter develop and tailor strategic corporate well-being programs based on the outcome for each organization. Our health and well-being technology helps take the pulse of your employees' well-being needs and promote positive engagement in your organization's well-being programs, encouraging them to move, nourish and inspire our broad range of services available both online and on site are designed to improve employees overall well-being and increase engagement within the workplace we aim to create the healthiest workplace across the globe to ensure that your most important assets your employees are energized and thriving contact us today to start your workplace well-being journey www.zevohealth.com um, I guess when you like maybe look back retrospectively and again um, as we were chatting at the start you really had this intention to make this relatable to the audience and um, as we spoke about heroin addiction is that kind of ultra extreme so for people who are maybe not quite at that end but find themselves grappling with even low low grade anxiety and kind of habitual patterns that they are struggling with is there anything from your process um, that's supported you kind of incrementally in regaining a sense of power and agency? Yeah, definitely so. And I'd like to share two, two of my struggles today. I wouldn't call them struggles because you, you've said the word a couple of times and it's come up several times. And I really love the word. It's intentionally intention, setting intentions. And I think that is really related to, to power as well. If you can set intentions, you're, you're, you're putting your feet in the ground and setting yourself for the position of power. And one, two of my challenges today, like funnily enough, I feel I could sit around like I'm not I could sit around. I'm not that I'm going to plan to sit around heroin, but it doesn't phase me. I don't want it. I don't want drugs or alcohol or anything like that. I haven't got this craving, this need. And that's because I've sort of gotten to the core. I, I befriended anxiety. So what drove my addiction was anxiety. I, I sort of enjoy anxiety today, which is a very strange thing to say. But for some strange reason. Food has a pull. I think it's because it's so bloody gorgeous. Like the dopamine, the, the, we have the best scientists, food scientists in the world making foods that are so delicious. And I just love food. So that's something I ha that's a, that challenges me as well. I'm always trying to watch what I eat and sort of I set me intentions around what I eat as well. As we speak, I'm doing research with a glucose monitor on my arm and I, I'm always tracking certain things and metrics and health metrics. But one of the things that I struggle most with would be the phone. 
And mm. I, I, I'm not a doom scroller. I don't scroll on Instagram. I don't really scroll on social media. I need it from my business in terms of what, what I do myself. But I suppose because I have my own business now, when I get emails in, that sort of opportunities that I get. So I just have this habitual thing where I pick up my phone and check it. So it's like, that's a very unpowerful situation that's lacking power because you're losing agency i'm habitually picking up the phone when i don't want to pick up the phone so you've got to set your intention so what i've done only recently was i've created a box in our apartment where it's the box for the phone and when Mm -hmm. i feel like picking up my phone it's out in the box so if that phone was beside me i would just habitually pick it up so you've got to intentionally take an action and do something about it and i still want to grab the phone and check it but i just do something different i've started to replace that bad habit with picking up and reading a book now and i used to even when i was my phone i used to check my phone while i was i get the traffic lights and i pick up my phone and I'm, I'm, I'm not even checking it for anything there's nothing i want to see it's an habitual process it's a lack of power so i change that around and what i do is i introduce a breathing technique i put my phone i, I put my phone in the boot at one stage so when I go to get my phone I was like oh, it's in the boot you're in the middle of an intervention here and I would take a deep breath so I'm replacing habitual unconscious behavior with present moment behavior of taking a breath in a conscious way and that for me is taking power intentionally switching streams of behavior to something powerful that you can do addictive streams of behavior to something powerful you can do but intention is the big word for me and giving yourself that buffer that time buffer so by creating the distance, making it go that extra little bit of, you've got space to take the breath. I do that with chocolate brownies, by the way. I have the chocolate press and <laughs> it's yeah. on the top shelf. I'll still get there. Don't you worry. Yeah. <laughs> it's so hard. It's so hard with food. <laughs> it gives you that extra time. Well, I was uh, reflecting on this with a friend lately. And um, if you think about food, food is one of those conditioned behaviors we're doing since the time we come in the world, like from birth. You know, there's other behaviors we take on uh, later in life, but um, consumption of food's there from the start. So it's no and doubt you, that. And you can't, uh, you can't abstain. Like you, you can, you can detox off your phone. You can get rid of your phone. You can change it sure. to a little Nokia that doesn't have a smartphone. You can uh, eliminate alcohol from your life. But you've got to eat. You've got to eat. That's the challenge. And it's like, I think the problem with, with it today is just everything's so full of sugar and sugar, sugar is so dopamine inducing. So, and I think when I see kids eating so much sugar, when I look at the research of how bad sugar is, like it's basically inflames our body in so many ways. So for me, sugar is a no-go for me. And I think that's really important as well, because when you get the basics right, like your nutrition and your exercise and your sleep, you cut off so many of the challenges, it increases your energy, it increases your mental health, it increases your physical energy, your your spiritual energy. And that that's a game changer. When you get the basics right, that can be really, really powerful. It kind of primes you. It, it creates a space. It's much easier to make the healthier choices. Yeah. I'm just, uh, when you said dopamine, like that seems to be the common denominator across many addictive behaviors, doesn't it? Especially the automatic ones. I am curious, just with regard to, so, just to reflect on what you shared, you really said what's helped you is the meditation piece was kind of the catalyst for that kind of inner glow and lightness and present moment awareness. You said intentionality, so being more um, deliberate in how you nearly the choice architecture of your space in terms of the problematic behaviours. Um, and then also just it's an ongoing process. That's also what I hear, that there's no end point. There's no ceiling where you're perfectly devoid of, of behaviours, that it's just an ongoing journey. But that's sum it up. 
that sums it up and that that's really important as well sarah because sometimes people can see like if, if, if you don't exercise and your diet isn't great and you're not into meditation and you're not into personal growth or any of these kinds of things that many people talk about the, the leap from that to changing your life completely it, 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 it the chasm is so big it really is and it's not about making those big changes because what you want you don't want to do something for a week or a month or a couple of days or even for a year for that matter it's got to be a lifestyle change it's got to be something that you do habitually and that's how you change habits and tournament routines over time so i think what's really important around that it's baby steps it's taking small steps making small incremental changes over time things that aren't so Oh, demotivating that you're going to stop doing them because all of a sudden if you try to change your life completely and you have to wake up every day and you have to, it feels like you have to climb Mount Everest on mm. Wednesday you're going to say I don't want to climb Mount Everest anymore and you're not going to try so yeah. make ba- create baby step changes within your life and that really is the way and you got to be patient with it as well I think that's really key patience and the long term gain yeah. so that's uh, that's goals I would just be curious now how we take this and put it in that workplace setting. So um, I know you do a lot of keynote corporate talks and you mentioned you've got a program. When when you are dealing with middle managers or who are so responsible at the moment or certainly have been highlighted as being so responsible as facilitators of team well-being um, or senior leadership, what what sort of let's say key takeaways or advice might you have for them when it comes to yeah raising awareness about addictive behaviors patterns in the workplace and supporting employees yeah i i I, t- I think it all comes down to connection and community at the end of the day and it comes down to psychological safety that's something that's really really important as well because if you're a manager and you have a team you've created a culture and culture is really interesting because there's cultures of organizations you also hear here you often hear about an organization with 6000 employees and the culture is great and they've great value systems and maybe they, a lot of people live those values as as behave in 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 aligned with those value systems as well but within that culture there's lots of little mini cultures within the teams like you could have a, a manager who is a bad manager and the staff do not like that manager because he's mean he's angry he's a bit of a bully i shouldn't be saying he could be a woman bully as well mm-hmm. so there could be just a bully and yeah. the, the 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 culture within that team within the organization could, could be toxic it could be a terrible culture so i think it's up to the manager of a team to obviously align with the corporate culture and values but they've got to create a space within their team as well and it's got to be psychological safety if you want people to feel safe and if they are struggling in any way they don't feel afraid to speak to the manager because at the end of the day if you go to someone say you have a bit of a drink problem between stigma and then worrying about the job getting done on that side it's there's very obvious challenges within that so they've got to create an environment where it's safe for someone to speak out and go to that person and be it go to them themselves, or maybe they can just create an anonymous gateway. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a company um I know called Robus, a good friend of mine, a mentor of mine, was the founder of that company, and they created a, an, an opportunity within that. So there's an, an, an anonymous company. So you don't go to someone internally within the company, you go to an anonymous company who they uh, pay for to see that service so it's outside of the company and that makes it psychologically safe for them to go and seek help and okay. that could be the first step that they need but there's there's also ideas around mitigating mitigating the challenges as well so I, I think I think it's 
It's about creating that sense of belonging, a sense of community and a sense of safety within that as well. And a sense that you're all in it together because we're, we're all struggling, teams, individuals, we're all struggling at the same time, different struggles are going on. So it's mm-hmm. just creating that sense of belonging within that space as well, I think is really, really important. But that's obviously, there's a lot of challenges around that too. There is with the remote and hybrid setup. I think there's all these new challenges emerging for many managers and they're trying to figure out how to do it. Creating the psychological safety piece, would you say adopting that sort of coaching mentality and how you engage with your team? I know it'll be context specific and different workplaces will have different requirements, but would you would you say that sort of eliciting um solutions and support from the team themselves and kind of being there as a kind of a coach mentor or or yeah, what's your take on it in terms yeah. of creating safety? Yeah, the coach and mentoring piece is I I I think that the the person in charge, the leader per se, needs to be non-judgmental. They need to be it needs to be they need to be living the values that are going to instill that psychological safety. So it's non-judgment, it's mm-hmm. integrity, it's honesty, it's trust, all mm-hmm. of these things. It's consistency. Because you think of trust, what is trust? Trust is an ability is trust is a is a is a value so you trust that person to continue acting in the way that they act so you need to be consistent in your actions and consistent in your in your behavior to instill a sense of trust so people can trust that the, the, the leader within that space as well so i think that is really really critical but something else, and I think this is the big challenge, and you really mentioned it around this hybrid work, and I would be very pro people working in the way that serves them best. But I think post-COVID or through COVID, we think what serves us best is working in a hybrid way, is working from home because we don't want to get into the traffic. We don't want to do that commute. But is that really serving us long term? And I don't think it is. If you have a company where it's a good culture, the atmosphere is good, I think you should make your business despite the commute to get into that workplace. Because I talked about psychological safety. It's very hard to build psychological safety across a Zoom call. It's possible, but it's very challenging because there's no eye contact made across Zoom. We're speaking to each other for the last 30 minutes, over 30 minutes. We haven't made eye contact. I'm looking at the screen. You're looking at the screen. The camera is looking at my eyes if it is. There's no eye contact and only... There's a very little amount of communication is actually done through the verbal word. Now we are seeing each other, we're seeing body language, that definitely helps, but there's no eye contact and there's no there's no crossover of energies. There's something different when you're in the room with other people. So I think to create that psychological safety, whether it's anchor days, whether it's team meets, whether it's getting people together in terms of a play atmosphere, a, a, a orienteer and a helping volunteer day, whatever that is. I think it's really important for people to get together in the physical form and connect at that level. And I don't think you're going to be able to instill in a, the required psychological safety unless there's some of that in there. I really do believe that. It actually reminds me of like uh, Dan Buechner's Blue Zone uh, research where he looks at, you know, the different regions across the world where they have the highest per capita centenarians yeah. and there are always these uh communities that are so built upon social connection intergenerational mingling um yeah it, it's like a central pillar in how the the different societies or, or groups uh function so there's deep truth in your sharing deep truth. 
and deep scientific yeah. evidence on that as well yeah. like biological yeah. evidence within that as well there's, a, there's like I, I just give an example of that because i think it's really really important so some of the latest research on that there's a metabolite called tachykinin that basically builds up within your brain so when people are socially isolated and feel lonely there's a build up of this metabolite that robustly predicts anxiety stress aggression paranoia and when you're together with people, whether it's a handshake or a hug, there's oxytocin. That is the mm-hmm. biological bonding that we crave. Like when you look at young kids, that bonding experience with the kids, that's just not between relatives. That's between friends and work colleagues as well. And all of those things reduce amygdala activation as well, the stress hormones within the body. And there's some great research. I was talking to Dr. Stephen Porges recently as well. So he's the godfather of polyvagal theory. And polyvagal theory is that biological, an element of it is that biological safety that we feel. And what happens when people are together with each other? They start co-regulating each other at that biological mechanism. So you form a sense of trust at a biological level because you can sense each other's energies and feelings within that as well. So there's an awful lot of science backing that up as well. Absolutely. I'm jealous that you got to speak to Stephen for this. He's brilliant. Um, and when you say the word, I guess maybe this is the last piece because I'm so aware of time. You mentioned the word co-regulate and often with addiction, we hear the term codependence. Yeah. So there's there's a vast difference, isn't there, between oh, like God, a, healthy, yeah. a healthy dynamic where you're both kind of reciprocally helping each other to thrive versus that enabling. I think you mentioned in, uh, when I heard you discuss your addiction before, that w- well-meaning co-workers were actually enabling you rather than supporting you to recover. Yeah, and uh, do you know what? I The challenge with that is, is because people that are codependent and people that enable other people it usually comes through love like that's mm-hmm. it was enabled by my family and I was enabled in my own workplace for years while I was addicted to heroin like we had a very family orientation we all grew up together within that workplace like there was a stage where the auditors I worked in a pharma company ironically designing methadone and labels and anti-anxiety medication and we would have like the, a, a pharma company coming in to audit us and the audit, the QC manager would say, can you get tell Brian, can you hide Brian in the dark room? Like, oh, they needed to sack me earlier at that stage. Like they needed to sack me. They were enabling me in a very loving way. And I think at a more subtle level in the workplace, you might be someone come in smelling of alcohol and just say, ah, don't mate, hide him. Don't, don't let anybody um, let them know that that person is, is, is having a drink problem where you need to tackle that head on. That's codependence. And it happens in relationships with, with, uh, with, a husband and wife and different kinds of relationships as well so that's the challenge so it's uh, yeah so for some managers some employers maybe listening to this might feel a little bit out of their remit but even that initial intention start learning more about it start fostering that connection the community and then raising awareness among co-workers um about support even signposting supports any of these little things can maybe serve uh employees who are struggling yeah, and I think something that's really important as well, Sarah, just from the manager's perspective as well, if they think that something is actually going on, I wouldn't go, definitely don't preach, definitely don't tell them what you think they should be doing or whatever like that, because the person that's struggling with addiction is, as I said, they're trying to avoid some kind of psychological or emotional pain nine times out of ten. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like if you try to preach and tell them what to do, you're like taking their coping mechanism away, you're taking their shield of armor away. So it's better just to go and say, here, look, if you're struggling with that, I just want to let you know that I'm here. I'm here. If you want to talk, I'm open. You can trust me. I'm here. Or if there's someone else you want to talk to, I can hook you up with someone anonymously. It doesn't have to, you don't even, it doesn't even have to come through the company. Just that'll give them a sense of safety as well. Wow, these have me back. 
You know that yeah. way. So because yeah. it is a touchy subject and people are going to be afraid, especially in the workplace when they're paying mortgages, when they're paying bills and there's other people depending on them at home. So try yeah. to try to capture it in that way. And I think that's something that's really, really important. So trying to overcome that impulse or reflex to to swoop yes. in and kind of save and rescue yeah. and fix all the paradox of the people to address. Um, motivational interviewing uh, has a kind of a strategy of quadrants. I don't know if you've ever come across it um, over the years. And just some of the interesting questions are like, what is it you love about your addiction? You know, what do you love about not not changing? And yeah. just even prompting these questions where you're not in resistance to the individual, but rather kind of pulling forward answers. Because deep, deep down, as you said at the start, people do want to change and they're likely aware of the destruction on some to some degree peripheral level um, definitely yeah i think like we've touched on a couple of things today and there's a line by a guy called johan harry he's wrote books on addiction and depression and uh lots of good great great art he's a really brilliant guy but he, he has a line from one of his books that sobriety is not the opposite of addiction connection is and mm. i really do love that because you're not only disconnected from others you're disconnected from yourself because you are trying to escape your psychological and emotional pain. You're trying to escape your feelings or eat your feelings if it's filled. So you disconnect. You're going to numb yourself. So you're disconnected from your feelings and therefore disconnected from other people. So massive impact of disconnection there. And I think in the world of COVID that we work into, worked in today and the hybrid world, try to connect as much as you can with your work colleagues and with the people that, that, that are in your life. But although I love Johan Harry's work and I love that line, I don't know if connections the opposite of addiction. I would say awareness, self-awareness is the opposite of addiction. As you said, you put it beautifully, that word lucid, which I love it today. It's thinking clearly because when you are struggling with addiction and even these low levels, low level addictions, you are going to deceive yourself. Like the, the mm. weapon of, of someone in addiction is self-deception. That's what they deceive themselves. So that it allows them to do things that they wouldn't didn't want to do going forward and they will justify and rationalize their way into behaviors destructive behaviors and it happens slowly over time and it's just it's there's no awareness around that and i think when you raise your level of awareness and awareness is a tricky one as well i think you can do it in different ways meditation spending time in nature asking friends their opinions of things that you're doing there's lots of different ways to build your level of awareness but once you become aware of your actions, your behaviors, your thoughts, your feelings, your beliefs, that's a game changer. Because for me, awareness is the catalyst for change. And once you become aware of things, you can't help but change. And I think from my own perspective, it was like the, the shift was like the lights came on. I was like, what was I doing? It wasn't new knowledge. It was new awareness. So that's the key. Try to, whatever it is, reading books, listening to podcasts, chatting to people who's who seem to be on a, a good path, raise your level of awareness. And that's the protective buffer we need for those addictive behaviors. Presence, intention, awareness. These three pillars. They're the pillars. Your three points of power. Your three, three points, points of, power. of power. I love it. I love that oh, summary. Oh, and it here, so uh, I guess in in summary, we didn't even mention the term control, the controllables and the whole thing, but that's it in essence. Those three things. Well, yeah. Well, could I, could I just actually, that's so important. Controlling the controllables are so important. I think it's, it's, it's people speak about it a lot that some of these most basic things can get looked over because of a result of that, but we have no control over external events. 
no control, mm -hmm. very, very, very little control over external events, what other people say or do. We always have control over how we respond to challenges. So that's setting the intentions there. So start with yourself. That is really, really key. Yeah, absolutely. I was laughing just before we came on for our interview. The neighbor's dog started barking like crazy. And I, I was just like, I had this momentary, momentary glitch where I was like, oh, what are we going to do? And then I laughed, like control the controllables, sat down, meditated. Dog went quiet. But I'm sure we would have managed anyway. We would have managed. We would have managed. You had no choice. It's outside of your control. Let <laughs> you gag the dog. You don't want to do that, though. <laughs> no, no, no. No, 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 Thank you so much. Honestly, it's such a joy. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope we'll get to talk again. Um, Same here, Sarah. Really, no, yeah. genuinely really enjoyed the conversation. It was great. It really was. Lovely. Thank you so much. So I hope you've enjoyed listening today and we'll leave with one or two little ideas to maybe experiment with and explore. And thank you for your attention. We look forward to seeing you on another episode of Zevo Talks in the near future.